Thank you for listening to Hope Fellowship Church in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. We're currently going through a sermon series about King David in 2 Samuel. David was a shadow of Jesus, the King of Kings who had come to save us from our sin and offer us eternal life. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hopejaffrey.org. All right, we're going to be, speaking of temptation, we're going to be speaking about it. So 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11, if you'd like to, to turn there with me, 2 Samuel chapter 11. As you're turning there, I just want to share a little bit of kind of where we have been and where things are going. To have a bit of a timeline, take a step back and see where things are going. So in the first 10 chapters of 2 Samuel, we've been going really fast. Okay, as far as the timeline would go, we've, there's a lot of, basically D- David takes over the kingdom and he's working really fast. And we, we kind of span many, many years within that time span. And, and it's all about David's triumph since taking over the kingdom. Now we're going to slow way down. Okay, chapters 11 and 12 slow way down and the focus is going to be on David's transgressions. And that's, that's our, his sins, plural, and we'll point that out this morning. And then 2 Samuel, the, rem, the remaining portion of 2 Samuel will be David's troubles. It's, it's the fallout from David's sins here in chapter 11. So everything that follows is a fallout from this moment, um, and we'll, we'll look at that as well. A bit of this setting here. Uh, Many of us, how many of you have, 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 uh, have heard the story of David and Bathsheba in like kids' church as a child in that manner? Not that many. Okay. My kids didn't. It always leads to very awkward conversations. Okay. Um, yeah. But I think there's some interesting things, though, as we look at the setting, what's going on in David's life right now uh, that, that st- should stand out to us. First of all, David is no young guy anymore. He's in his 50s at this point, and some of you are going, well, that's still young, but it's not as young as he was, okay? We can agree there. Uh, and, and right now, things are looking great for David, okay? He's, he's had all these wonderful triumphs. We look back to 1 Samuel 7, he has this amazing prayer to God of how God is blessing him, right? And the, his kingdom, the kingdom has expanded, it continues to expand. There's respect from surrounding regions, and that continues to grow. He's got this one little place that's given him a hard time. We saw in chapter 10, we'll continue to see that all the way up until the end of chapter 12. But the nation of Israel at this moment has never been more solid. In fact, the best years for Israel are right here between David and Solomon, and they would never experience that kind of greatness, that kind of success until modern times. Okay, so there's a a huge impact here to the nation of Israel because of the sin, the sins of David. Right now, though, David's experiencing the best years Israel has ever had or will have for quite some time. And so I want to I jump in here. We're just going to read through the first five verses here in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It says here that in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. 
I'll pause there for a moment. I think part of the application for us here, as we look at the circumstance David has placed himself in, is one where he's not doing probably what he should be doing. Now, it's not the first time that he's stayed back from battle, but the significant moment in which he has an ongoing conflict in a a time in which uh, shame and honor were a really big deal. And you'll remember back in chapter 10, right, we had had these, these individuals that are sent to this nation, to the Ammonites, and what happens? They're, they're, the men with beards are shaved right in half, right? Uh, it would be great if I could do a Photoshop of my face from when I had to shave it a year ago to right now, all right? Just half of it. Um, but but there's, there's shame that is brought to the kingdom of David. And so at a time when David should be responding, he's, he's not. And, and also, David's experiencing, as we've already mentioned, he's experiencing great prosperity. Things are looking up. David can get whatever he wants. Things are in a good place. And I think the caution for us, as we look at that position that he's in, is to be careful. I think there is a tendency that as we get older, as we get more settled, as life gets more secure, that we can let our guard down. We can let our guard down towards temptation, that, well, things are going well. You can imagine David's looking at the battle and going, listen, that's a young man's game. They can handle that. I'll stay right here. But I I also love, and this is a side note, but I, I love the fact that the Bible is always honest, even when it's difficult. It does not shy away from the ugly parts in the account of our heroes in the faith. In fact, as we look at some of our heroes of the faith, it's interesting that two-thirds of the heroes of the Bible failed in the last one-third of their lives. I think it's good for us to pause and reflect where David is at right now in his life and where many of our kind of heroes in the Bible, many of them, as they got older, they let their guard down and devastation followed. David is going to be no different. We see this captivity into sin. So follow along with me then verse 2 in 2 Samuel 11. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, it, it, it is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. You look at this occurrence, it's springtime, things have warmed up. It wouldn't be unusual to David, for David to go on this walk on his rooftop, okay? And don't think like our rooftops, right? But, but it would be totally normal for people to be out and about. In fact, he notices this woman, right? He has this glance. And it wasn't the glance, though, that would lead him to trouble. It's the gaze. As he stood and lingered, he took it in. And that temptation now begins to root itself within David. But I I would like to suggest that this is not the first indicator that we have seen in the life of David that he might have a particular bent toward the sin of sexual immorality. 
Okay, we have eight wives named in Scripture, five of which are only named one time. If we look back 2 Samuel 6, we have Michal, who's the daughter of Saul, and Michal's the one who mocks David and how he's worshiping God, right? Which results in David would not then be intimate with her. It says that she has no children from him. He would, no long, he would not be intimate with her, and so she would end up with no children. David has children, as recorded in 2 Samuel 3, David has children from six other women. In 2 Samuel 5.13, as he conquers Jerusalem, it says that he takes wives and concubines. I, I tried to get a graphic of, of the kind of the David's family tree to help us visualize this. Let's just say it's out of control, okay? It's really complicated, it's a mess. Okay, so I I think we had already seen here, and and in fact, it wasn't as as if David shouldn't have known. Deuteronomy 17, 17 says this, as, as the nation of Israel was saying, we want a king just like the rest of the nations. God said, fine, but listen, your king is going to be different. And he says this in Deuteronomy 17, 17, and he, the king, shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. David should have known better. And just think of the lineage he's about to leave behind, the impact, right? We think of Solomon, who's known for all his wives and concubines. There was a reason God wanted his people, his kings, to be different. Just as the nation of Israel was to be different and set apart from all the other nations, so the kings were to handle themselves differently. And yet David the man after God's own heart walked right into this. As we continue to kind of look at these first five verses here, we also see that there's unfinished business with the Ammonites, but David stays behind. What's interesting is he's going to find himself held captive to his own lust. There's a story of a wealthy contractor who had finished building the Tombs Prison in New York. It's now known as the Manhattan Detention Complex. Shortly after the, the, the building was completed, he was found guilty of forgery and sentenced to several years in that very prison that he had built. And as, as he was escorted into the cell of his own making, the contractor said, I never dreamed when I built this prison that I would be an inmate one day. David has done the same thing. He's built a kingdom, but he's about to to create his own prison created by his own sin. His own lust will become his prison within his kingdom. And I think what we need to see here, too, is not just the sexual immorality that occurs here in David's life. It's important, and Scripture speaks very clearly about how we are supposed to handle ourselves sexually. But it's, it's more than just this one sin. We're going to see that there's many sins that follow. Yes, it's about sin. And as I've titled this message, it's about the anatomy of sin, how we are drawn to it. But we look at just David, it's more than this sexual immorality, it's also covetousness, which breaks the 10th commandment, adultery, which is the 7th commandment, stealing, the 8th commandment, living a lie, the 9th commandment, and murders, the 6th commandment. 
you know, when, when there are hard things, I think we're more prone to go to God. If something difficult is happening, someone's ill, someone's in the hospital, things are hard, the finances aren't lining up, whatever it might be, it's, it's very easy to go, Lord, I need help. Why? Because I can't do it. But what about when I can do it? What about when things are just going well? It seems like nothing can stop me. Things are great. Do we go to the Lord there as well, saying, Lord, help me, things are going well, but keep me, keep me from temptation. Guard my heart. David, here's, here's the core of what started happening. How you get the shift from 2 Samuel 7, where, where David is just beside himself, why the Lord would choose him and build this great kingdom. How do we get to where we are right now? It's because David started building his own kingdom rather than God's. And do we not do the same thing? Daily choosing my will, what I want, over maybe what the Lord wants me to do. Purposely doing that which his word speaks completely against. Why? Because I want to. And we look at David. David was no poor man. King David had everything, and yet he still wants in Bathsheba the one thing he's not allowed to have. Another woman. But do we not see this from the very beginning of creation with Adam? Who God goes to him and says, listen, this is all yours. Enjoy it. Just not this right here. And yet the one thing Adam wanted more than everything else was that one thing he couldn't have, the one thing that wasn't his, and it decimated the relationship he had with God. Now, I think it's important for us to understand who our characters are here outside of David. Who is Uriah other than Uriah the Hittite? Okay, we, we can see that. Uh, Uriah is from Canaan. He's also convert, had been converted to Yahweh. He is serving the Lord, and we're gonna, we see that in the way he's going to respond to David that he loves the God of Israel, that he's following the God of Israel, that he has been converted to following Yahweh. He's been grafted into this nation. We see that he loves the Lord. He cares about the law. He cares about God's people. Right? Uriah, as, as the, the husband of Bathsheba, we also see that Uriah, later on in 2 Samuel, is listed as one of David's elite soldiers, his mighty men, his gaborim. He was part of the inner circle in the military. He was a dedicated soldier. This is who Uriah was. It wasn't just some random soldier. It was someone who had honor and prestige even before the eyes of David. But he married Bathsheba. Bathsheba is where it gets interesting. We see Eliam, Bathsheba's father, who's also known later on in 2 Samuel as one of the elite soldiers, the mighty men, the Gaborim, the inner circle of the military. But not 
So Elam has connections, but then there's a, another individual, Bathsheba's grandfather, whose name is one of my favorite names in the Bible, Ahithophel. It's a great name. Again, I wouldn't recommend it for your children. But Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather. And as we're going to see very soon, in, in a week or two, that this is one of King David's closest advisors. Ahithophel is also one of the ones who joins up with one of David's sons, Absalom, to join in the rebellion against David. Do you not think (laughs) that this moment right here is the core as to why those closest to Bathsheba and Uriah say we've had enough with the lies of David, we see past the facade, and we're going to go right after him. But we'll save that for another time. Also, I want us to see that the focus is not on Bathsheba. There is debate around, well, what role did Bathsheba play? I'm sorry, but the focus is on what David had done wrong. There's no indication that Bathsheba had positioned herself or been in a place that she should not have been. We just don't have that from the text. Here's what we do have very clearly. And again, the focus is on David and what he has done wrong. 2 Samuel 11, 4 says, now, now she, or Bathsheba, had been purifying herself from uncleanness. Why is this important? This little editorial note there for us. It's important, and also it says that she returned to her house, right? After she, she had been with David. The Levitical law required a woman, after her monthly cycle, to go through a ritualistic bathing. Why is that pointed out? So that there would be absolutely no doubt who the father is of this child that is conceived within Bathsheba. From the point of God, and physically speaking, there is no one else to blame for that child other than David. David can't get out of it as much as he's going to try. And so we have all this laid before us to help set that scene, to help us understand it's David. David sinned. Let's be very clear about that. That's what the text is trying to help us understand. And then we begin with um, David's cover-up of that sin. Follow with me in verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. What a odd conversation for the king to not call the man in charge, to call one of the other soldiers and say, hey, how's Joab doing? He's like, small talk. Okay, what an awkward conversation this is. And then David said to Uriah, hey, listen, go down to your house, wash your feet. So Uriah went out to the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all servants of the Lord and did not go down to his house. And when David, when they told David Uriah did not go down to his own house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a, a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, and this is where it begins to reveal Uriah's heart, what he's focused on, which is a slap in the face to what David should have been doing all along. Uriah says to David, the ark and Israel of Judah dwell in booths. They're in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord, my fellow soldiers, they're camping in open field. Shall I then 
go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. The character of Uriah being pointed out, there was already kind of a an unwritten code with the Israel soldiers that, listen, you don't go enjoy the pleasantries of life when, they're, when, when we are in war. And this is what, what Uriah is telling David. Why would I go be with my wife? Why would I enjoy the pleasantries of this life when there is war going on? That's where I belong. The whole goal that David has in mind right now is he wants him to spend time with his wife so he has a way to say, well, it's not my baby, it must be his. Plan A doesn't work. So, plan B, get Uriah drunk. We continue on. Verse 12, then David said to Uriah, hey, listen, remain here today also, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah, Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David then invited him, and he ate in the presence, and he drank so that he made him, made Uriah drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. A drunk Uriah is wiser than a sober David. David trying to twist everything. You can see how scared he is of the fallout if this sin is found out. He is scared to death. He is twisting. He, he makes another man drunk to try to get to him to sleep with his wife so he can offload this sin that he's committed. Then we turn to plan C. Verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. Again, I think shows the character. This letter would have been sealed by the king's stamp. Would have been like a, a wax seal, so they would have known if that letter had been tampered with and broken, and the character of Uriah, he doesn't even realize he's carrying his own, what we're going to see, his own death sentence, but the character of, of Uriah is one that honors even that. In the letter, David writes, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And so as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Not just Uriah, but other soldiers die in the attempt to make sure Uriah is killed. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jeribasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on from, from the wall so that he died in Thebes? This is just a callback to an incident where there literally was a woman who threw a millstone, a giant stone off the wall and killed individuals because they got too close, right? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah though, the Hittite, he's dead also. And so the messenger goes to, to David to tell him all that Joab had sent him to tell. Verse 23, the messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, 
and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And here's David's response. Look at this. David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. Here's what David's saying. Hey, you win some, you lose some. It is what it is. Do you see the callousness of David's response? The lack of care and compassion? Look how sin has just begun to twist his very soul. You see recorded then, verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. I think one of arguably the saddest verses in the Bible is found at the end of 2 Samuel right here. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. There's a reason this little editorial comment is there. It helps us know what we're to take away from this entire account. And this is it. The Lord is displeased. You can see in David's life even right now, he's not noticing it the way he should, but David is no longer enjoying the joy of the Lord. He's isolated himself in a prison of his own sins. He's pushed Joab away. He's pushed servants away. His sin has impacted other families and these other soldiers who were murdered because of what, the plot that David put in place. And yet he doesn't even stop with just Uriah being killed. He attempts to continue to cover his sin, taking Bathsheba as his wife, which again is to communicate to the people around him, listen, look how well I take care of those who are closest to me. Remember, Uriah is in his inner circle. It's another opportunity for political gain for David to say, look, I take care of my own by taking Bathsheba in. And another insult to the murder of Uriah. I love what Oswald Chambers says here, and I think this encapsulates what we're seeing unfold in the life of David. Oswald Chambers says this. He says, sin enough, and you will soon be unconscious of sin. Sin enough, and you will soon be unconscious of sin. Listen, you do the wrong thing enough, you won't even realize it anymore. It's just how you are. And this is David. He is so caught in his own sin, he doesn't even realize what's happening. But David will soon begin to feel the impact of his sin. There will be a tremendous cost, which we're going to look at very quickly. But we're going to see David, not only David himself with his isolation, this turmoil, the grief, the pain. If you're wondering where we get that from, that goes to Psalm 51, which is his response when Nathan, the prophet, comes to him here in chapter 12, and you see that turmoil within him, that isolation that he had been felt. But it's not just going to stop there. It's going to impact his family, and specifically, it's going to impact his sons. He's going to have sons that will kill sons. He will have sons who will try to unjustly take over the throne. You have Bathsheba's husband who's murdered in this process. You have other soldiers and their families who are impacted. And yet, right here, we close chapter 11, and David thinks, I did it. I'm off the hook. 
I successfully cleared up my mess. But like a lying kid about eating chocolate cake while there's still cake on their face, this is exactly what David looks like. There's a mess that he's overlooking. So from chapter 11, the close of this account, as this new baby is born, there's about a year, give or take, that, go, that passes by before Nathan the prophet in chapter 12 comes to confront David. And so if you enjoy a good drama, this is where you really want to lock in. 2 Samuel 12. Verse 1, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, Nathan starts with a, a story. He says, there were, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, one little female lamb, which he had bought. And he had brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children, it he used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling, the rich man who was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. And so the rich man took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Look at David. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Nathan picks the perfect story. What better story than a story about sheep to the one who spent a lifetime as a shepherd? You would understand the care and the compassion a shepherd had towards its sheep. It's the perfect timing. David thinks everything is good. David would relate to this story. The rich man takes this poor man's one lamb. Oh, what a great story. Even though he has enough to take of his own. Then David gets angry. We'll kill him. It's interesting. The, the, the law actually speaks into this. What, should the, what does the law actually require? It requires what he ends up following up with, that really if, if this rich man took the poor man's lamb, he needs to pay fourfold what that lamb was worth. I, and I think here's the application for us. Is it really easy to look at the sins of others and go, how in the world could you do that? We're so harsh toward everyone else's sin. But it's easier for us to kind of ignore and excuse and shove away our own sin. I love the turn here. And can you imagine me? Here's Nathan the prophet. He's come into to this, the room with David. He's before the king, the, the nation of Israel at its, at its height. And he comes and he tells him this story. David responds... And look at what he says. Nathan says to David, you are the man. You are the rich man. And thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king. This is God speaking through Nathan to David. 
I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife. You have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. It's as if you killed him yourself, is what he's saying. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, which is an echo to what's about to come from Absalom. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. You think you can hide, David? No, everyone's gonna know how wicked your heart really is. David responds, verse 13, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. We listed off the sins of David. David, according to the law, deserved the death penalty. So keep that in mind. And Nathan responds to David. He says, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. The grace of God extended, right? Final outcome's gonna change, but Nathan doesn't stop there. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you, between you and Bathsheba, shall die. And that's how Nathan ends it. He leaves the house of David. After a year, David's sin had finally been openly called out. Can you imagine the waves of shock as David's hearing this unfold in front of him? Oh no. Nathan says the sword, according to the Lord, the sword will not leave your house. He's going to have three sons that are going to be murdered. He's going to have a, he's going to have one of his daughters who's raped by one of David's other sons. There's going to be his sons rebelling against him and trying to take over his throne. And yes, we see David confess. I believe we're not going to have the time to go through it as you continue in the chapter during David's child dying here, it says that he goes in and he worships the Lord. I believe that's part of when he probably writes Psalm 51. He recognizes, listen, this isn't about me. All of chapter 11 was about David concealing his sin. It's all about me and protecting me and my name. What he never realized is the sin was ultimately against God. And he finally comes to the end of it all and he goes, I have sinned against God. Psalm 51 helps us see the depth of David's repentance. He acknowledged that that sin at its core was an attack on a holy God. We see God's grace come through, that though David, according to the law, deserves to die, God spares his life. And so, yes, we see right here, there is cleansing from sin, but the consequences often still exist. We'll summarize verses 15 through 31 this way. David's first son with Bathsheba dies. We then see shortly after that Solomon is then born. 
So he would be the son of David and Bathsheba, the second son of David and Bathsheba, Solomon, who would be the successor to David's throne, which is a call back to 2 Samuel 7. Chapter 7 is where David is glorifying God because he realizes his son is going to one day take the throne. This is Solomon. Comes out of all this mess. And then at the end of, of chapter 12, David does what he should have done at the beginning of chapter 11. David finishes the battle with the Ammonites, the ones who had brought shame to him and his people, and he finishes out the battle. It ends this way, and thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. This is the entire account of David and Bathsheba and the fallout of David's sins. Said at the beginning, we're going to go back we're going to end up going, actually forward, to James. The anatomy of sin, we see this play out in what we just saw unfold with the life of David. James 1, 14 through 15, as we've already heard, read, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James describes five stages of the life of sin. He says this, number one, sin begins with an evil desire. Desire pulls your soul, it entices you. Be thinking, David, okay? Be thinking your own heart, how you see this play out. Sin begins with an evil desire. It pulls your soul to entice you, to get you to not just glance, but begin to gaze. Number two, evil desire conceives. It gains the consent of the will. And when that happens, number three, sin is born. Sin has its own life. So no sin is an end until itself. We see this unfold in the life of David as his sin and what he's trying to, how he's trying to respond to it begins to unravel. He loses control. Number four, sin grows. Because if it's not cut back, sin will keep growing until in the end, number five, sin produces death. There's the well-known line in the story of Samson with Samson and Delilah. He's seduced by Delilah who was deceiving him and then when he was asleep, she, she shouted, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. The problem for us is that our enemy is sin. And it's not only upon us, it's also within us. And yes, the account is David's sexual immorality, but it's also so much more. We see all throughout scripture that God speaks against sexual immorality. He takes it very seriously, but this is not the ultimate takeaway. The ultimate takeaway from the life of David, the one who had it all, who is, who's the one, man after God's own heart, is to realize David wasn't going to be the ultimate king. That ultimate king was yet to come. And as good as David was, and as great as the nation of Israel was up until modern times, God was pointing out, as good as this man is, he's still man, and he's still sinful. What we're supposed to take away is to realize we are more sinful than we can imagine. Psalm 51, take time to really dig into that. It reveals David realizing that. I am more sinful than I can even imagine. We are prone to find other things rather than intimacy with God. Our idolatry, that is our worship of someone or something other than God, as though it were God, has no bounds. We will run after it all day. 
We want to build our own kingdoms without God's input unless things don't go the way we imagine them going. So how do we raise an awareness of our own desire to build our kingdom? How do we, how do we come to the point David finally did and say, I've sinned against God and God alone. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word reveals how lost we are and how in need of a savior we really are. Hebrews 5.14, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their power of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So the spiritually mature then are those who desire to follow after Christ and not the enticements of this world. They're ones that train their souls to avoid sin. And listen, it's easy to read these passages and, and think, well, they're, they're meant for me to judge the world by, all that sin out in the world. No, these passages are specifically written for my heart, for your heart. They are meant to reveal the sin in my own heart. So I want to ask plainly, what sin resonates with you? For David, we saw how the sin of sexual immorality, adultery, that, that resonated with him. But don't think, well, that doesn't resonate with me, so I don't have to worry about it. No, the, the picture here is sin. How are you being enticed by it? How are you being drawn into it? What sin do you find yourself running to? There are things that we each run after, thinking that they're going to provide some amount of lasting joy, that they will give us what we think God has maybe withheld from us, or that will provide us with the very thing that we want most in this life. And it's all a lie. God's word tells us the path of eternal life. And what's what we see in the life of David. Number one, it's a recognition of how sinful we really are. And number two, David, you're not going to die. It's also a recognition of how loved we really are. Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's, it's his victory that overcomes it's not me, it's not you, it's not in all the efforts that we could bring. It's because God loved us. It is because God sent his perfect, blameless lamb, the son, Jesus Christ. It is because Jesus died for me, he died for you, taking the punishment we deserve for our rebellion against a holy God. It is God's grace through the gospel of Jesus that is available to all of us. It is because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is our only hope from the bondage of sin. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for not hiding us from these hard and difficult things. Thank you for revealing to us even one who is great. Oh, Lord, sin so captured his heart. Lord, let us not 
think that we are beyond any of that, but to realize your goodness to point out to us when we are in a position where we are tempted, but thank you, Lord, for making a way of escape. Help us to rest in you, to run to you, to love you above everything else, to not fall for the false idols of this world, but to run fully into your embrace and your love. That's in Christ's name we pray.